Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This year, 2020, the NFL has entered its second century of play. Some of the league's oldest teams include the Cardinals, the Bears, the Packers, Giants, Steelers. When the league launched in 1920, sure, there were the Cardinals, but there were no Bears. There were no Packers, there were no Giants, and there weren't any Steelers. There were the Akron Pros, the Canton Bulldogs, the Detroit Heralds, and Chicago Tigers, to name a few. And there were also the Decatur Staleys. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of an NFL original, the Decatur Staleys. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Sports Forgotten Heroes, the Decatur Staleys, an NFL original, or an original of the American Professional Football Association. The Staleys started play in 1919 and just a short time later became a charter member of the APFA, the league now known as the National Football League. The Staleys were a company team in an industrial league, but what a history. In their lone year prior to the formation of the NFL, the Staleys put together a season for the ages which ended in a mythical championship of Illinois. They had stars. Their quarterback was none other than famed baseball manager Charlie Dressen. They won games by the most lopsided scores, like 89 to nothing, and they attracted the attention of a man synonymous with professional football, George Hallis. So, how and why did the Staleys come about? Who did the Staleys play and how did they wind up in professional football as opposed to staying in a league as a semi-professional team? Chris Serb, a member of the PFRA, that's the Professional Football Researchers Association, has written and researched about the Staleys. And he's also the author of the book, War Football, World War One, and the Birth of the NFL. Well, he joins me on today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about the Decatur Staleys, how George Hallis figures in Decatur's history and the advent of professional football. It's really a terrific story. You know, it amazes me just how many incredible forgotten teams and stars there are when it comes to sports, and the Decatur Staleys are one of those stories. For more on the Staleys, make sure you follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. I post there every day with facts, figures, and more information about the stars and teams I talk about. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook or check out sportsfh.com. Here, I have so much information on all of the stars and teams I have spoken about. Links to more stories, stats, videos, and more. You can also send me questions, make comments about the shows, or suggest future topics. That's sportsfh.com. And please don't forget, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast a five-star rating and a nice review. Thanks for listening. 
So, the Decatur Staleys, who were they? What became of them? And just how does Papa Bear, George Hallis, fit into the whole story? Well, here to tell us more is Chris Sir. Chris, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. So glad to be here, Warren. Thanks for having me on. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, like you said when we spoke earlier, we're sort of kindred spirits. We enjoy discussing the forgotten heroes, the forgotten teams, and and sports history and trying to figure out how did some of this slip through the cracks. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, you know, the, everyone knows the stories of, uh, a George Hallis, a Red Grange, and, you know, even though they, even though they were around pretty long ago, we, we know their stories, they've been passed down through the ages. And some of these other folks have, have kind of, kind of fallen by the wayside. And that's the kind of stuff that I like to, like to uncover. You know, I, I like the Hallis stories. I like the Red Grange stories, but I like the, the, the kind of obscure people that maybe shouldn't be so obscure anymore. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's fun. It's fun researching that and it's fun talking about it. Absolutely. And tonight's topic, you know, very much the same, the Decatur Staley's. I mean, that's, that's a team that very few people have ever heard of, yet they really watch them every Sunday during the football season, and they don't even know whether they're watching them. Right, right. Yeah, the uh, the Staley's were uh, – now, anyone in Chicago knows that the Staley's are the precursor to the Chicago Bears, but mm-hmm. people around the country might not know that as well. Uh, so the original Chicago Bears – were uh were founded in Decatur, Illinois, about 180 miles downstate of Chicago. And mm-hmm. you know, the hardcore Chicago fans uh all know that the Decatur Staleys existed, know that they were kind of the 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 fountain from which Hallis uh Hallis led the led led the the team into the NFL and became a founding member and then moved the team to the, to Chicago. But one of the things that even even the hardcore Chicago fans think that is 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 not quite true is that the Staleys were around before Hallis. You know, most mm-hmm. people uh, when they think of the Decatur Staleys, they think that this is entirely George Hallis's creation. George Hallis begat the Staleys and begat the Bears, and you know he's Papa Bear, of course, and uh, and 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 that was that. He's just so tied to the team, and mm-hmm. and everyone kind of assumes that he was he was the guy. So uh, it's kind of funny because I read. Uh, while researching uh, while researching my book, which I know we're going to talk about that on another episode, but while researching my book, I had to read Hallis's autobiography, and he fully acknowledged that he didn't found the Staleys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Staleys were around a year before Hallis came to town. Yeah, I mean, he uh, did. <laughs> so that was kind of that kind of piqued my interest, and I started looking into them and digging into them and uncovering some of the stories, and uh, it really was pretty fascinating. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, uh, you know, that that didn't belong in my book. My book covered a different topic, but I wrote pretty extensively about that for the uh for the coffin corner last fall the uh the pro football researchers association magazine with uh mm-hmm. with uh, a, a small but spirited readership I, I i would say so it was uh it was fun it was fun writing to to those kindred spirits of uh of yourself and myself mm-hmm. well you know the nfl which is now into its second century was actually founded in 1920 as the american professional football association and one of the original teams was the Decatur Staley's but their history actually starts before the NFL or APFA so who were the Decatur Staley's and where did they get their start so the Staley's uh the Staley's were uh a, a team an industrial football team that represented the Staley starch making company uh the AE Staley company so uh AE Staley had uh had been in the business for quite a while. I think he got his start in Baltimore or something, but he moved his operations to Decatur. Uh, I think it was 1912 when he, uh, when he moved all his, uh, all his uh, stuff to Decatur and opened a factory there. And he thought that sports would be good for the factory for, for two reasons. One, uh, it's a needed morale boost. These are, 
these employees are working in some pretty dreary industrial jobs. So isn't mm-hmm. it nice, you know, if you have an afternoon off to have a have a little baseball game or, you know, something, get outside and cheer on your cheer on the guys that you work with uh, playing a little baseball or football. Uh, and then two, which is probably more important for Staley, uh, for publicity. He wanted to spread the, the Staley brand around the Midwest and, and even around the country. So um, he started with baseball. He founded a baseball team in uh, 1917. And uh, they were a, a decent industrial league baseball team. They played uh, they played other factories. They played uh, minor league teams. They even did occasional exhibitions against uh, Negro League teams and major league teams. Uh, and he saw that this was he saw that this was successful, that the, the employees supported it, that it was kind of a, a shot in the arm to employee morale. And it was getting the Staley name out there. So mm-hmm. in uh, 1919, he decided to do the same thing with football. So uh, they um, I've got the dates written down here somewhere. I think it was uh, October. Well, October 5th was their first game. September 20th, 1919 was mm-hmm. uh was when the team was born. It was born at a, at a meeting of the Staley Fellowship Society. So for reference's sake, that's uh, that's exactly six days after the uh, the Green Bay Packers played their first game. So mm. they're kind of kind of going along parallel tracks there. And it's kind of funny that they uh, that they would wind up having such a long and bitter rivalry because they, they got their starts in much the same way and in exactly the same uh, exactly the same month. Mm-hmm. Before we really dive in deep into the Staley's, let's set up the case a little bit. Tell us a little more about Decatur. Where exactly is it? I think you said it's about 180 miles outside of Chicago or 100 miles outside of Chicago. What was life like in Decatur back in the early 1920s for the 44,000 residents of the city? Right, right. So Decatur was, it was a small town but it wasn't a small town town it was it was definitely a city you know it was surrounded by agriculture uh it was in the middle of, you know you had you had farms to the right farms to the left but then uh a city that actually had some uh some railroads running through town you mm-hmm. had some manufacturing in town the staley company was probably the biggest of the uh of the manufacturers uh at the time the big the biggest uh the biggest business in town at the time but you had a you had a small university james milliken university which which still exists today mm-hmm. was uh so you had a college in town. It uh, it was it was not. Uh, I think it was the seventh largest city in Illinois at the time, if, mm-hmm. uh, if I have my my census facts right. So it was you know it was small, but it wasn't small time. It was you know it was a it was a fairly thriving city at the time with a lot of things going on, and it was uh, it was the perfect spot to get this this industrial. Uh, this industrial type of sports going, uh, especially with uh, especially with the, the Staley factory having so many employees. And, uh, you know, a lot of the employees had come from had, were local kids that got a job at the factory that had played on the uh, on the high school football team there. Maybe they had played at Milliken University. Maybe they had played. There was a there was a semi pro team a few years. Uh, it disbanded during World War One. But uh, the Decatur Indians were a semi pro team. So a bunch of these guys were already there. They were that uh, that had a little bit of football experience. They were already in the factory. Now, were these the biggest stars? No, but they were they were some pretty darn good football players. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the Staley's wound up being a pretty darn good football team. Mm-hmm. What about the company? You said they're a starch company. What what does that mean? What what was the eight or tell us about the AE Staley company and how important was it to the employees? You sort of touched upon this to have a football team or a baseball team or or teams in other sports. Yeah, so uh so basically, the Staley Company would they they manufactured all kinds of things from corn. You know, they were they were uh, agricultural products. So so the starch making uh, was their big line of business. It was corn starch. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, this the, the stuff that you have for the stuff that you would use in in, in your baking uh, in your baking products. Um, but uh, they did corn starch, corn syrup. Uh, you know, Staley syrup was a big uh, was a big brand here in Chicago uh, back in the day. It doesn't I don't I don't think Staley syrup. Exists exists anymore um but uh, the the company itself doesn't exist anymore yeah i was going to ask you um i think i read somewhere that they actually did exist into the late 1900s like around 1980 or the mid 1980s 
Um, yeah, it was so, like the mid 1980s. They uh, some British conglomerate, uh, uh, Tate and Lyle, I think is the name of the British company that mm-hmm. uh, that bought them out. So uh, they they still run the Tate and Lyle still runs the factory, still runs the factory indicator, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yes, but uh, Staley's kind of gone by the wayside. But it was a pretty important, uh, pretty important part of the fabric of uh, of what was going on in Decatur at the time. And uh, you know, again, uh, uh, reasonably. Uh, reasonably busy city in the middle of all these farms. Well, uh, that's the perfect type of business to be in. You're processing the farm products into uh, into useful means that are easier and more durable uh, to ship around the country. So, mm-hmm. uh, so the Staley Staley plant was pretty bustling. I don't have exact figures on how many people were working there, but uh, it kind of dominated. I've, I've looked at a lot of the old newspapers from the day. And it kind of dominated, uh, the news stories of what was going on in Decatur at the time. It was a pretty, it was a pretty, uh, muscular, uh, muscular business in, in its era. I think, you know, it wasn't on the scale of the Chicago stockyards, but it probably meant as much to the, to the city of Decatur as the stockyards meant to Chicago back in the mm-hmm. day. And it, and it covered, uh, Pretty uh, uh, a pretty big piece of ground. I think I read it had like twenty nine buildings over fifty acres, so it wasn't exactly a small uh, uh, physical structure. Right, right. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a an industrial machine. You had different types of shops. You had uh, they had their own fire department. Uh, they they had a lot of stuff going on. And in fact, the original coach of the Staley's uh, he coached for he coached for the first three games in 1919. Uh, he was the construction foreman for the Staley hmm. factory at the time, and he just he had to quit because he was too busy with all the building and all the growing at the company that was going on. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it, it was. Definitely Definitely, uh, it was definitely a thriving, uh, thriving business, thriving industry. But at the same time, these were kind of uh, these were kind of uh, dreary <laughs> jobs working on an assembly line. You know, stripping sure. corn husks to make. I don't, I don't know exactly how the process works, but stripping <laughs> out uh, out corn to turn it into little little uh, different little product, and it's probably you know probably a little bit smelly, probably a little bit dirty. So. Uh, yeah, Staley thought that the athletics would be really good for morale. That was that was really the the, uh, the what he put forward as why he was why he was sponsoring athletics. And and again, as I said, the publicity didn't hurt either. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that was that was that was kind of his uh, his explanation for for why he got into this and why he believed in it. All right, I'm about to hit you with a couple of questions right in a row here. Okay. How did company-sponsored teams work? I mean, did they hire a real coach? Did the coach work for the company too? When did they practice? When did they play? Who did they play? So uh, it's it's funny you say that. I was uh, putting together some notes for today, and uh, this was – uh, the company sponsored team it's it's a little bit unusual for us to think of in you know the 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 early 22nd this uh, the early 21st century but back in the early 20th century it was actually pretty common to have uh industrial sponsor teams you had uh a couple of early NFL teams got their start as industrial teams you had the uh the the Dayton Triangles, which was made up of workers from three different factories in the the Ohio city of Dayton, uh, you had the Columbus Panhandles. They uh, consisted of workers from the the Panhandle line of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Uh, you even had, uh, and I already mentioned them, but you even had the Green Bay Packers. Technically, wasn't an industrial team, but it got seed money from the Indian Packing Company and and later the Acme Packing Company. So uh, that leads to the famous team nickname, the Packers, that's mm-hmm. still with us today. Uh, so those are some of the biggies, along with the Decatur Staley's. But you had dozens of other industrial teams. You had uh, uh, some names that have been lost to history, but you had the Kiwani Walworths. You had the the Bloit Ferries, and they uh, they were called the Ferries because uh, the Fairbanks Morse was the company that uh, that uh, that sponsored them. Uh, you had the Moline Tractors. Uh, they, these teams never made it big, but they really were an important part of the fabric of early pro football. So it was uh, it was nice to have a company sponsored team for a couple of reasons uh, because you had plenty of uh, independent semi pro teams all around the Midwest, but 
you know, how are you going to earn your money? You know, you had to, uh, you couldn't make your living in professional football unless your name was Jim Thorpe or a couple of other <laughs> elites like that. You couldn't make your money solely as a, as a professional football player in the day. So if you played for your town team, that was great. And you might make, you know, uh, let's say you were a good town team in Ohio, which had, was more advanced with professional football at the time. Let's say you're making a hundred bucks a week. Okay. That's great. You know, you've got you got an eight game season, maybe a nine game season. Okay. You make 900 bucks. That's pretty good money for the day, but that's not going to pay the bills for the entire year. So that was what was great about these industrial industrial teams at the time. Uh, you, uh, you were guaranteed a job. Pretty much everyone that was, everyone that was on these teams, everyone that was on these teams worked at the factory, but, and this is something that Staley uh, established, he held open tryouts. And if a player was good enough to make the team, they would find a spot at the factory. For ah, okay. Um, okay. So you had guaranteed employment there. Uh, the company, and this was true for the Staley's. I'm not sure how true it was for other industrial teams, but the Staley's paid all the expenses and let the players share the gate. Yeah, uh, that, that was pretty darn generous. <laughs> and, yeah, I was uh, going to ask: did, did did the players get any extra compensation for playing? Did they even earn anything for practicing? And how often did they practice? They uh, well, with the Staley's, they practiced every day. This this wasn't true of all the industrial league teams at the time, but uh, the Staley's pretty much practiced every day, usually about an hour a day. And they did get paid for practice time. Now that is, you know, that, that varies based on, based on the team. Some of the teams, some of the industrial teams uh, paid players to practice. Many did not, I would say most did not, but, uh, but Staley, uh, Staley believed in sports and he pushed it. It was usually an hour a day. It might be two hours a day. Uh, but before the biggest games, it could be as much as four hours a day. And then, uh, and then the player, again, the players split the gates, uh, uh, after after the Sunday games too, so it wasn't big money. They didn't draw the huge crowds uh, that uh, that you know. Again, Jim Thorpe drew up in up in Columbus, and uh, there was a really good uh, team in in Hammond, Indiana, the Hammond All Stars, which George Halas actually played on in 1919. And those guys, uh, you know, played before 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 fans. The Staley's were more like 1,500, 2,000, 2,500. You know, decent crowds, but. Uh, uh, the play, the players on average took home about ten dollars a game during that during that nineteen nineteen season. But just as importantly, they had guaranteed employment and they did get paid for their uh, for their factory wages for the time that they were practicing. So it was a pretty good deal. And yeah, yeah, it sounds like especially for back then. Um, who were some of the players on the original Staleys? Are there any names we might know? Any names we might be familiar with? There are a handful. So the one that would be most famous today, and this this goes to the diehard baseball fans, uh, but he was a pretty darn good football player too. Uh, he was a quarterback for the Staleys. His name was Chuck Dressen. He was, uh, baseball, he, was, uh, he, was he was a great manager. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. He was. Uh, he played in the majors for. Uh, I think it was about eight years. Uh, he won a mm-hmm. World Series with the New York Giants in 1933 as a player. That was his last year as a player. Uh, but then he went on to a long, long coaching and managing career. Now, he never won a World Series as a manager, but he did win two as a coach. He won with the uh, no, both the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Yankees. He won uh, he won World Series with them. Mm-hmm. And then he was uh, probably most famously, he was Jackie Robinson's manager during right. the early 1950s with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So he was uh, he was a baseball guy through and through, but he was a pretty darn good football player too. He was, uh, he was a quarterback. He was a high school dropout. You know, uh, uh, a lot of these guys, um, a lot of these guys, high school diplomas weren't necessary to make it back then, of course. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to work and he wanted to play baseball. So that was, that was the path that he followed. But, uh, but, uh, he was a pretty darn good quarterback for those 1919 Staley's and he had played for, uh, he had played for the Decatur Indians too. He had been around the, uh, the kind of independent semi-pro football scene for a while. So Dressen was the, uh, would be the best known name today, uh, the best player on the team was uh, the only guy that had any major college experience. Actually, he was a fullback uh, named Jake Lanham. Uh, mm-hmm. He played. He started out playing at Milliken University, but then during World War One, when there was a lot of uh, a lot of turnover and a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities too, he transferred to Illinois and played uh, played one season there. He was a part time starter there in uh, 1918, and he was the leading scorer for the the Staley's in 1919. He had 17 touchdowns on the year 
year. Pretty, pretty wow. good, uh, pretty good uh, fullback. Um, another guy, uh, Jack Minton, uh, was a center. He was another guy that never played college football, but he played, uh, had played at Decatur High School, had played for the Decatur Indians. Uh, he was a really good defender. He also doubled as the team's place kicker. That was uh, that was uh, not that rare in those days. You know, if you <laughs> okay, you're a center, but uh, but uh, if your leg is better than than these other guys, there was no specialist. There wasn't, uh, uh, you know, um, Rodrigo Blankenship running out onto the field for, you know, for eight kicks a game or whatever. You you stayed on the field 60 minutes. So if the center was the best kicker, then uh, then that's who kicked. So um, uh, so Jack Minton was a center and a kicker. Um, so these were those were probably the three best players on the team at the time. But uh, there were a bunch of other guys that uh, had some interesting backstories to them, too. You had uh, there were a couple of brothers, uh, Red May and uh, and his brother Baldy was his nickname. I think Chester was his real name. Uh, but uh, Red May Red May played the whole season for the Staley's. Uh, Baldy May only played only played one game, but uh, they had been really good semi-pro players with the Taylorville independence, which was, uh, about 40 miles Southwest of Decatur. Uh, you had a guy on the team that he had also played for the Decatur Indians, uh, but he was a bona fide war hero. His name was Lutz Krigbaum. And, you know, he, I think, I think he played three games for the Staley's in 1919, but he had, he had won the distinguished service cross, which was kind of, uh, uh, pretty high up metal, kind of the, the equivalent of the silver star, I guess, for, uh, mm. for, for stopping an enemy attack during world war one, the previous, uh, the previous year. So, um, you, you had some, you know, some names that have been forgotten to history. Certainly, uh, I, I could rattle off. I've got a lot of names here. And unfortunately, you pull these records out of newspapers and some of the names you only have last names. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't uh, mm-hmm. they didn't really uh, the, the journalism standards weren't quite what they are today. Uh, and uh, yeah, of course, they didn't know that 100 years later, <laughs> you and I would be interested in this team and interested in talking yeah, about sure, it. But sure. um, yeah, but mostly, you know, they were local boys. They were. They were pretty much all from Decatur or had moved to Decatur at some point. You know, they mm. had, these guys weren't uh, other other than the May brothers who were brought in from Taylorville. And, and that's only 40 miles from Decatur. That, you know, there was no recruiting. There was no uh, uh, let's let's do a cross country tour and scout players and sign the best players. That just uh, that just didn't happen in 1919. It would mm. happen with Alice in 1920. But uh, but in 1919, these were these were local boys. These right. were these were. Uh, uh, these were these were these these were sons of Decatur for sure. Mm-hmm. How good were the Staleys? I know um, they lost their first game, but I also saw where they won a game. You know, fifty to three. Later, they won a game eighty nine to nothing. How good <laughs> yes. were they? Or you know, or were these aberrations? Tell us about the Staleys and 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 how good they were. So probably the aberration would have been that first game, the the game that they lost. So that's kind of, you know, and I'm, I'm a Bears fan. I grew up in Chicago. It's kind of funny that the, uh, the first game in Bears franchise history is, uh, is a three, nothing shutout loss, you know, and you can look at some of, uh, the Bears offenses of, of recent years and say, yep, it figures, you know, we're just kind of, kind of keeping on that tradition. But, um, uh, the, the, the loss and it was the Peoria tractors was the team that beat them, uh, beat them three to nothing. Uh, they didn't get anything going on offense, obviously when you don't score anything, but they only had four practices under their belt at that time. So it kind of makes sense that that would have happened. And that game itself was kind of controversial because there was, uh, the, uh, the, the field officials that, you know, it was an away game at Peoria. So Peoria supplied the officials and, uh, the, the field officials were assistant coaches for Peoria. And the the officials actually got in an argument. You know, it's kind of funny because they're 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 assistant coaches for the same team. You'd think they'd be on the same page, but uh, <laughs> Peoria uh, tried a field goal and one uh, the referee said no, that's no good, and the umpire said yes, it's good, and they kind of got in a, <laughs> got in a disagreement, and uh, and uh, the uh, the umpire ultimately won out, and uh, and wound up uh and peoria wound up winning the game three to nothing but it you know those of us today us to, we today uh, would say that a that's a conflict of interest you know that's a, the, the fix is in sure. but uh yeah that was probably the aberration the uh the the following games you know uh yeah 50 to 3 89 to nothing 32 to nothing these were these were thorough beatdowns. There's no question about it but we do have to keep that in perspective a little bit uh you know these opponents that they were playing uh were town teams, uh, not industrial teams, uh, Stonington, Staunton, Champaign, uh, 
uh, Arcola. You know, these were they definitely put the semi in semi pro. These were these really were average Joes. You know, few of them or, or or none of them had played college football. And you know, if the Staleys were making ten bucks a game for for playing in Decatur, you know, these these were small cities, very small cities. You know, they might make two bucks, three bucks a game compared to the 10 bucks you would make in Decatur. So, um, so the blowouts weren't aberrations, you know, the Decatur Staley's were definitely a good, good semi-pro industrial team, but you know, the, the competition wasn't exactly the greatest, uh, with one exception, uh, the Taylorville independent. And that's was, where I'm uh, going. So, okay. I think that sports were, they were different back then. Community was different back then. I think there was more of a a family atmosphere, and I think that was certainly proved in Decatur's first real big game when they took on Taylorville, the Taylorville Independence. Now, before you tell me about the game and perhaps the pageantry around it, can you tell me a little more about Taylorville? I mean, they were a pretty tough team, and from what I gather, they were involved in a rather historic game of their own against Carlinville, a game involving a lot of ringers. Yes, that is for sure. Yeah, that's really if you uh, if Taylorville rings a bell to to a, to a football fan, it's because of the Taylorville Carlinville scandal, and that was uh, that was a couple years later. That was in 1921. Uh, so quote unquote Taylorville played quote unquote Carlinville. Uh, the actual teams were current players uh, from Illinois and Notre Dame. Uh, and, uh, when they when they got caught, they all got banned from college athletics. In fact, it's kind of <laughs> ironic. Uh, the only the only Taylorville player that played under his own real name uh, was Chuck Dressen, the guy oh, who wow. played for uh, for the Decatur Staleys. But um, but yeah, so Taylorville is best remembered for that scandal. But, uh, but in its time, Taylorville was a, a really a powerhouse, a semi-pro powerhouse. Uh, and, and, uh, they were, they were a town team, so they weren't affiliated with a factory or anything like that. But, uh, in the four seasons, uh, between 1914 and 1917, they went 33 and one, uh, they, they put some beat downs on some opponents, including the Decatur Indians, uh, kind of one of the predecessors, one of the feeder teams for the Decatur Staley's, uh, uh, Taylorville beat them by 45 points or something like wow. that. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that Dressen and, and Jack Minton and those guys kind of remembered that when, uh, when 1919 rolled around. Um, but, uh, so Taylorville was a really solid team before the war. Uh, they didn't have a team in 1918 due to the war, but, uh, they reassembled in 1919. And by the time of this Staley's game, uh, Taylorville, was four and oh they hadn't given up a single point and i think they had averaged something like almost 50 points a game so so they were the real deal uh now why was taylorville so good uh the rumor uh it was kind of spread by george hallis in part uh was that it was through the use of ringers which you know they got exposed for that in 1921 mm -hmm. but uh uh you know the paid college players who played pro ball under assumed names uh now, so George Hallis kind of spread this a little bit. Uh, he's 60 years later in his autobiography, uh, Hallis, who, of course, wasn't there. Uh, he was playing ball up in Hammond, Indiana at the time. Uh, he said that he heard that Taylorville's team in 1919 was mostly made up of Ohio State players. Uh, and he mentioned a couple by name. He mentioned Chick Harley and Pete Stinchcomb, both of them who would play for Hallis uh, in the in the coming years. Now, this is possible. It is it is possible if you look at the calendar. So Ohio State played on November 8th. They played again on November 15th. Uh, the Staley-Taylorville game was on November 11th. It was a rare mm. Tuesday game. Mm. It was uh, it was an Armistice Day special. It was the very first Armistice Day uh, anniversary of the end of World War One. So so it's possible that it, this happened, but it's highly highly unlikely. You know, Ohio State was. Uh, in the, in the thick of the big 10 race at that time, they were undefeated. There, there's really very little chance that their coach would have, would have let the players miss practice when they're in the middle of the big 10 race. Uh, mm -hmm. and then if you look at the logistics, it's really unlikely too, because, uh, you know, they had played on the eighth in Columbus, Ohio, and that's 350 miles from Decatur. It's not an easy, uh, commute, especially, you know, their next game, the following Saturday was, I, I think it was in Madison against Wisconsin. Uh, and so, yeah, they would have been traveling, but you travel through Chicago for that. You don't go three hours out of your way to to go to this little, you know, this mm -hmm. small city. But um, 
But really, uh, to me, and and again, I wasn't there, just like George Halas wasn't there, but <laughs> the biggest piece of evidence against Ohio State ringers playing for Taylorville is that uh, Harley and Stinchcomb were all Americans. Uh, when they when they played pro ball, they were very good pro players. Uh, if they were playing for Taylorville, they would have crushed Decatur. And, it, you know, it would have been stars against, you know, a, a Decatur was really semi-pro. So the stars against the semi-pros, the stars would have mm. crushed them, you would think. And that's not what happened on that day. That's not what happened when the Staley's faced off with Taylorville. Right. Didn't, did, did, didn't, they, didn't Decatur win? I mean, this was a big deal for the company and the community. I mean, almost the entire community went to the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, A.E. Staley gave everyone the day off, everyone except that, you know, the, there were some very vital workers that, uh, you know, kind of you, you couldn't you couldn't send the plant fire department, for example, <laughs> to the game. But, you know, there were over a thousand people that went from Decatur, including most of the factory workers to the game. It was uh, it had a it had a big time atmosphere. Think, you know, think uh, think Ohio State, Michigan or, or you know, Indiana, Purdue, you know, that uh, and the semi-pro teams didn't have that much tradition back then. So this was kind of a big deal that, uh, you know, it's a, it's armistice day. It's a holiday. Uh, uh, you've got, you got two of the best teams in the state playing. It was, uh, it was really a big attraction. You know, they, they threw up extra grandstands, kind of temporary grandstands, which, which collapsed. and <laughs> Some of the fans were actually injured <laughs> in the process, but um, it was, uh, yeah, it was really a big deal. And uh, it's funny that, um, Taylorville uh, that Hallis said, ah, Taylorville had ringers, you know, and then Taylorville would get caught a couple of years later hiring ringers. But uh, Decatur actually hired a couple of ringers of their own. But I'll, I'll get to yeah, that. I was uh, I was going to ask you about that. They were accused after the game of using some ringers. But, yeah, go on. Continue. Yeah, so. So the game itself was it, it was a really good game. Uh, it was it was tough. It was hard fought. Um so the opening drive, Decatur just marched right down the field. Uh, Jake Lanham scored a touchdown. Uh, and then on the next drive, uh, Taylorville started to march down the field. And then this uh, this halfback named Walt Veach uh, came up with an interception, uh, returned it 60 yards for a touchdown. You know, Decatur's leading 14 to nothing. Is this going to be another one of those 89 to nothing blowouts, you know, uh, against a pretty good team? Well, that's that's actually not what happened. Uh, the defenses took over from then on. It became a became a game of punts, a game of field position, a game of really solid, hard nosed defense from there on. And then finally, in the fourth quarter, Taylorville broke through. Uh, they made a rushing touchdown. They cut the lead to fourteen to seven. Then Decatur didn't do anything on their next possession. Taylorville has the ball back, down seven points. Something really good might happen here, right? But uh, Taylorville fumbled. Uh, on their own, on their own, uh, I don't know if it was the 35 yard line. I, I had that written down somewhere. Can't, can't see it right now, but yeah, Taylorville fumbled on the next possession. Uh, Decatur marched right down the field and then, uh, Dressen, Chuck Dressen scored, uh, scored on a short touchdown run and, uh, made the score 21 to seven. And that's exactly how the game ended. So, mm. so it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, Decatur won by two touchdowns, but it was really close game. It was a really good, really hard fought game. And it lived up to the billing. You know, there was a lot of hype in the central Illinois newspapers about this at the time. And this was one of those games that really, uh, really kind of lived up to it. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after with with Decatur being accused of using a few ringers of their own? Yeah. So Decatur. Uh, yeah, they. uh there was almost immediately this scandal. Uh, you know, there, you had these rumblings about Taylorville using ringers, but uh, the Staley's had two new players in their lineup who weren't who they claimed to be. There was there was a guard named Moran was his name. He started the game. He played really well on defense. Uh, there was a halfback named Casey who also got into the game. Uh, well, so uh, so the game was played at Taylorville, but half of the town of Decatur was there or really uh, not literally half the town, but there were a lot of Decatur folks there. Well, one of those folks there was, uh, was the coach of Milliken university. You know, they didn't have a game. It was Tuesday. You know, he gave his players the day off of practice and, uh, and he went down to watch the game and uh, he's sitting there and he immediately recognized Moran and Casey were two of the starters. <laughs> so um, yeah, Roy Adkins and Sid Gutford were their names, but uh, yeah. So the, um, the coach immediately kicked those guys off the team. And this was actually, this was a huge blow. Milliken was uh, undefeated at the time. They were in first place in the, uh, the, the little 19 conference. Uh, and this, you know, could, could put a, uh, possibly put a damper on a conference championship mm. for them. Now they did wind up winning the conference championship. I think they stayed undefeated the whole year, but uh, 
But uh, yeah, so this was, uh, he kicked him off the team and Staley kind of had to issue an apology, which uh, actually fell kind of far short of an apology, <laughs> but, uh, but he had to apologize while trying to keep the balance of, uh, of, of sticking up for his players because these guys wound up becoming regular members of the Staley's for the rest of the season. Wow. Wow. Interesting. How serious did the players, the teams, the communities, the companies take these games? Was there ever anything on the line? How serious was this? I would say it was pretty, the, the workers were very invested in the games. The, you know, these are the guys that they've been working on the, on, on the line with, again, you know, a couple of guys came in and, and, and got spots on the team and were given jobs. But otherwise these were, these were local boys who had been working at the factory for a couple of years, happened to be good football players with some, uh, some, uh, previous experience. So, um, so, Hey, let's, let, let's cheer on Jake. Let's cheer on Jack. Let's cheer on Chuck. You know, it was, uh, uh, there was a, a, that morale effect that, uh, Staley was looking for really was present. You know, the, the, um, the Staley company really did get behind their team. Uh, and the players took it really seriously. They, they, they liked, uh, they liked playing football. They hadn't gotten all of the football out of their system yet, even though they were in the twenties, mm-hmm. they, they were all in their twenties by now. Uh, some of them even in their thirties. Uh, they, they liked playing the game and they liked, uh, <laughs> they liked, uh, supporting the company because the company had been good to them. They were paying mm-hmm. their, paying their salaries, guaranteeing them jobs and, uh, and giving them time off for practice on the company dime. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they were, they, they were definitely invested in this. Mm-hmm. And boy, the Staley's, they were really good and, you know, they had a great season and they said they were the champions of Illinois and enter George Hallis. How <laughs> right. did Papa Bear find his way to the Decatur Staley's? So it's kind of funny because uh, it, the resources that I've seen or the the sources that I've seen, uh, Hallis was just sitting in his office. You know, he worked at a he worked in Chicago at a at a for a railroad designing bridges. Uh, and then he moonlighted as a, as a pro football player, mm-hmm. uh, and had actually played pro baseball the previous summer, but he didn't for quite, didn't quite make it in, uh, in pro baseball. Yeah. He yeah. Yeah. Yankees. He was, uh, played a dozen games or something like that. Got, uh, batted, batted below a hundred. So <laughs> that was that, but, uh, but was a good, you know, good football player for the Hammond all-stars, which was a very good, uh, football team with a, with a roster that was a, a notch well above the Decatur Staley's. Uh, so Hallis was working in his working in his office. Uh, I think it was February of 1920, and uh, this, this man, this Mr. Chamberlain, who worked for who worked for Staley, came by and um, and asked to uh, asked to talk about his opportunities and kind of kind of recruited him. So this was uh, part of Staley's strategy. So he liked having having a good football team. For, he liked having football and baseball for morale, but um, mm-hmm. he. You know, he knew his baseball team was never going to be big time. The major leagues were already entrenched. They had been around for decades. But this was the dawn of professional football. If Staley got in right at the beginning, uh, maybe he could make a splash and maybe he could spread the Decatur Staley's name around. He he could spread the Staley brand around uh, Mm -hmm. even a little bit better than it already had been, you know, playing these small towns and kind of small time teams. So. Uh, yeah, the big move was hiring Hallis, coaching Hallis, which, uh, you know, Hallis wasn't looking if you, if you hear, if you listen to Hallis and there's no other evidence to show that, uh, that Hallis was putting out feelers. Um, so Staley through, cha- through this man, uh, uh, Chamberlain, uh, uh, recruited Hallis to be athletic director for the Staley company. So Hallis would play for the Staley baseball team, which they had a hall of fame manager of their own, by the way, Joe McGinnity was, yep. uh, was a hall of fame pitcher and was still pitching. He was 48 years old and, uh, he, you know, he pitched well into his fifties, play well into his fifties. Um, but, uh, so Hallis would, uh, Hallis would play baseball and he would play for and coach the football team. Uh, but one of the things Hallis wanted to know before he accepted the job was, could he upgrade the roster a bit? And Staley said, absolutely. You know, a good roster, a good team, that'll, that'll, that'll be really good for marketing. So mm-hmm. uh, originally, Hallis said that he planned to keep most of the 1919 Staley's around. He was just going to add a handful. Yeah, he of just wanted players, to maybe. tinker with the team. 
Right, right. Yeah, bolstered the roster a little bit. A couple of his buddies, you know, a couple of guys he had played with. So in reality, he just overhauled the roster. He he brought in guys he had played with at Illinois. He had played with them at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Uh, he had played with them for the Hammond All-Stars in 1919. He recruited some guys that he only knew by reputation, uh, but all of them former college players. Uh, now, a couple of them actually did come from Milliken, so he didn't have to look far. You know, he's already in Decatur and, you know, he got some of Milliken University's best players. But most of them were from Big Ten schools, Notre Dame, places like that. Uh, he brought in a total of 18 new players, uh, including himself. And four of those, including himself, uh, would eventually make the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, so with uh, with better talent, with bigger crowds, uh, in the 1920s dailies, uh, they made about $125 per game. This is a huge raise mm. from the $10 that the 1919 dailies well, made yeah. per game. Uh, so, so Decatur made it big time, but unfortunately what that meant was getting rid of a bunch of the small time players. And what, what happened to them? So they're no longer on the team. Do they still have a job at, at the Staley company? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of the guys wound up staying with, with the Staley company for, you know, 30, 40 years, but, um, and, and Hellas did hold tryouts. He didn't just wholesale kick these guys off, but it's kind of funny. The team captain, uh, was a guy named Fritz Wassum, a pretty good football player. He had played at milk and he was also a pretty good baseball player, but, uh, Fritz Wassum played end and that's what George Hellas played. So, so Fritz Wassum was out, but, mm. uh, but, uh, yeah, he did, he did hold tryouts. You know, he, he would keep out, keep around those of the Staley's that could hack it. But, um, yeah, with the 18 new players and many of them with really good pedigrees. Uh, what Hallis remembered when he wrote his autobiography, and again, you know, he's in his 80s at the time, you know, this is 60 years later. He said that he only kept three of the 1919 Staley's. Uh, in reality, if you look at the records, he actually kept seven. Uh, mm. He kept both of the Milliken ringers. He kept those those three really good players, uh, Jack Minton, uh, Chuck Dressen, and Jake Lanham that we talked about before. Um, and then a couple other guys that were kind of bit players. But um, uh, Dressen, Minton, and Lanham were really the only three that belonged on a on a on a true NFL or, or APFA at the time roster. Mm. But um, yeah, the other guys they 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 went into they they went they were local boys they were still in town they still had jobs at the plant uh you know a couple of them a couple of them wandered i know fritz wassum uh went back into baseball played some minor league baseball never made the big leagues um but uh uh lutz krigbaum who was the war hero went to work for uh uh I've lost my train of thought here. Let's correct my, I think his family had an electrical business mm -hmm, and he went mm -hmm. into that. Uh, uh, Wally Przinski, he was a, he was a, a decent halfback. He became a mechanic at the, the local railroad shops. Uh, there's a guy, Lawrence Thrift. Uh, he started five games for the Staley's. He scored a couple of touchdowns. He went away. He went back into the agriculture field. He worked for his family's family's uh, seed and farm implement business. So, uh, yeah, these uh, yeah, they had their moment in the sun playing for those 1919 Staley's, but it just just wasn't meant to be. But for the most part, they had pretty good lives uh, mm -hmm. after that, and they had their their little taste of glory. Now, for the seven that uh, that played for Hallis, they had some uh, some. Uh, pretty good experiences too. Uh, Mitten and Lanham wound up being NFL champions and, uh, and Chuck Dressen, as we talked about, yeah, he didn't really make it in football. He did play, uh, he did play in 1920 for Hallis, uh, and then played a couple more seasons for a team in Racine, Wisconsin, but, uh, he had that great, uh, major league baseball career, uh, -huh. uh more as a coach than as a player, but a pretty decent career as a player too. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and speaking of professional football, you know, when, when Hallis came aboard, and became a member of the Staley's, he had much more loftier goals as opposed to just becoming a part of the team. He had his eyes set on creating a professional league. Can you tell us about his goals and how he went about it? Yeah, so Hallis, uh, when he was sitting down to, to write a schedule for the 1920 season, you know, he called, he started calling the, the usuals, the Kiwani Walworths, the Moline Tractors, and trying to put together, trying to put together a schedule that wouldn't take the Staley's too far from their factory home. Cause after all, they still had to work for the factory, but he said, huh, 
this is kind of small time stuff here. You know, it would be good to play uh, against the kind of team that I played for last year, the Hammond All-Stars, which weren't that good after 1919. They kind of, that was, that was their apex was 1919. But uh, it would be, you know, Hallis in, when he played for Hammond had played against Jim Thorpe and the Canton Bulldogs. It'd be good to play against the Canton Bulldogs. Right. And, and some of these, some of these good, ga- good teams, uh, the Chicago Cardinals, they were, mm-hmm. they were known as the Racine Cardinals, but that was after Racine street in Chicago, not after, uh, not after Racine, Wisconsin. Right, right. It'd be good to maybe get games against some of these teams. So he wrote to, uh, he wrote to, uh, I, I think, I, I think it was the, uh, the Canton Bulldogs and asked for a game and then mentioned, uh, mentioned the need for uh, mentioned. I, I think it'd be nice if we got a league together of all these, uh, of all these good teams and, and, and other owners were thinking the same thing. So Hallis got an invitation to the, uh, to the, uh, the founding of the NFL, the meeting in, in Canton in September, 1920, that basically established the NFL. There had been mm-hmm. an earlier meeting, like, uh, in August of 1920, but, uh, uh, with just a couple of teams, but, uh, September, 1920, that was the real, that was the real big one. That's when, that's when the league was formed. They agreed to, uh, to, uh, coordinate scheduling. They agreed not to poach each other's players. They agreed not to hire college players, uh, and agreed to name a champion at the end of the season and really kind of agreed to move towards the big time. You know, it wasn't big time football yet, but it was much bigger time than, than the semi-pro football had been. And even the, even the higher level pro football had been. Now they had an organization, they had some clarity, they had some coherence, uh, they had a vision and, and Hallis was a big part of the, that vision, you know, and it's, it, it, it's partly being in the right place at the right time. And it's partly, you know, the fact that he mentioned these things and kind of, kind of inserted himself into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's really interested in learning more about how the NFL or the APFA was founded, you could check out episode number 72 of Sports Forgotten Heroes about Leo Lyons, who was one of the co-founders of the APFA. So here's another question for you. How did George wrestle the team away from Staley and why did A.E. Staley allow George to take the team? Well, <laughs> it's kind of funny how that happened. So, so Hallis, uh, Hallis put together, you know, revamped the roster. They had a really successful 1920 season. Uh, they only lost one game. They finished second in the league. Uh, so they played, uh, they played three games in Decatur that fall and uh, they drew no more than 2000 fans in any of those games, you know, a good crowd of factory guys, you know, that were able to attend, but you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the, the big spectacle that maybe AE Staley had hoped for his, his, his company, his team was getting mentioned in the papers, but it wasn't the big spectacle and it wasn't bringing in big box office. So, uh, but at the same time, the Staley's played, uh, three of their away games in Chicago. There were, there were two pro two NFL teams in Chicago at the time. You had the Chicago Tigers, uh, who played at, uh, Cubs park now known as Wrigley field and the Chicago Cardinals played at normal park on the South side. So, uh, they drew more than 4,000 fans, uh, every time they played an away game in Chicago. So Talis decided he was going to move this, the final two home games to Cubs park. Uh, they drew 8,500 in the first game. They drew 12,000 fans in the second game. So, wow. Yeah. So, and Hallis looked at the numbers, you know, the three games indicator earned the Staley's about $2,000 total between all three of them. And then the season finale at Cubs park brought in more than three times that amount. So wow. if the Staley's were going to succeed, they clearly were better off in a big city. Um, so that's exactly what the Staley's did. So a uh, uh, Staley continued to own the team, but kind of realized that it wasn't financially in his best interest to keep doing so. So he came to a gentleman's agreement with Alice before the 1921 season that uh, he would turn over control of the team to Hallis. They wouldn't announce it until after the season, but he would turn over control of the team to Hallis, give him $5,000 of seed money, take the team to Chicago and good luck, young man. <laughs> so uh, they did play the first two games in uh, indicator. And actually the second game uh, of the 1921 season did draw 4,000 fans. So that was the best, uh, the best crowd that the, mm. the Staley's ever drew down there. But then they moved to Cubs park for the rest of the season and they averaged over 6,000 fans uh, for 
nine home games. Uh, and I think, I think 12,000 fans was, was their top. So the wow. Buffalo all Americans was the team that, uh, that they faced. And that was the team that ultimately finished second in the league to the Staley's uh, who uh, really were a success in Chicago. They, uh, they went, they went nine, one and one. They won the league championship that year after finishing second in the first year and they succeeded at the box office. So, um, so really that's where the future was. So uh, yeah, Staley, Staley wanted to get out of sports at the same time. He was, he was bleeding money by, Mm -hmm. you know, guaranteeing these players jobs and by uh, you know, and by a kind of, kind of silly, it was kind of not, not very uh, didn't have much foresight on Staley's part that, uh, that he didn't get a, a share of the gate, that the gate was just split among the players. And he was also paying for their practice time, paying their travel expenses, things like that. Uh, so yeah, so Staley, Staley wanted out. He, uh, he formally transferred ownership to Hallis and his partner, you know, they kept the Staley name because of the $5,000 payout just for the 1921 season. But then after that, they were the, uh, the Chicago bears and uh, Staley had his reasons, you know, and and it's good in business to focus on your core business, I imagine. But uh, yeah, he actually noted that uh, it was kind of a, a, a long, long explanation when he formally announced that they were getting out of sports that, uh, yeah, you know, he wanted to improve employee morale, and in some ways, the employee morale was going down because of uh, because of professional sports. Because some players who you know couldn't couldn't strip a corn husk at all uh, yeah. were, were were getting cushy jobs and you know being paid and, and not showing up. Or you know, at one point, uh, I, I took a note of this. You know, and, and this is kind of ironic because for me to say this because I'm a firefighter by trade, uh, but a big city fire department, you know, uh, Staley's had an industrial fire department and not very busy, really cushy jobs, sleeping a lot. Uh, and a fully one third of the Staley fire department in 1920 was, uh, was made up of athletes of the baseball and football players. So, um, yeah. So yeah, these athletes might've been taking the jobs of people with less, you know, they, they had lesser skills that maybe than the people that had the jobs, but because of the sports, you know, that, that Staley wanted to help build morale with these people who had no athletic skills might've been losing their jobs. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, and, and Staley didn't want that to happen, you know, especially, you know, a guy with seniority, a guy with a family to feed, you know, so so he, uh, yeah, he had some, he had some really good reasons for getting out of the game, you know, but then on the flip side, when you look at it, you know, and, and he said, I think at the time he said that he estimated that he had lost a hundred thousand uh, dollars over the, what would it have been at that point? 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Yeah. Five seasons uh, wow. where we've been sponsoring sports, uh, th- uh, football for three seasons and baseball for five seasons. You know, he lost a hundred thousand um, dollars. Now, what was the value of the advertising of of that hundred thousand sure. dollars? With the value of the marketing, it would be good to put a number on that. But yeah, if Staley had kept control of that team. That, uh, that uh, you know, take it take it to Chicago, George. We'll uh, we'll keep your name on it, and uh, I'll still be the owner, and you'll be the Chicago Staleys, and and whatnot. Uh, uh, that team is worth three point five billion dollars today. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe uh, maybe a little bit short sighted of uh, a daily there but uh, but it makes sense you know you read his reasoning and you know morale expense uh focusing on core businesses and uh and uh yeah that's uh that's ultimately why why staley got out of the game and and his loss was george Halas's gain for sure mm-hmm. um early on in today's show you had mentioned that most football fans at least most football fans in chicago know of the Decatur Staley's. But I'm going to ask it this way. Is it fair that the original Staley's, the 1919 Staley's, are hardly remembered and that the team today, originally known as the Decatur Staley's, is hardly remembered for anything that A.E. Staley did? That that would be absolutely true. Yeah, it's it's really it's really forgotten, you know, to 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 most fans, to most uh, and, 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 and very serious fans with a lot of football knowledge. They think they do th- tend to think that it was entirely Halas's creation. And uh, it's kind of funny. One of the things that I wrote about in my article was uh, 
that there was a Staley Day reunion. You know, Hallis kept kept close ties. He stayed in touch with A.E. Staley and with A.E. Staley's son. And, you know, they, they had a friendly relationship over the years. There mm-hmm. was no bitterness over the, the loss of the team or or any of that stuff. You know, and in fact, Hallis was very grateful for uh, for what Staley did for him. And I think Staley was always grateful for what Hallis did for him, too, mm-hmm. with spreading the name. But um, there was a Staley Day in I think it was 1956, uh, the Bears played the Baltimore Colts, and and it was uh, they had a big reunion. They had all the old players from the Staleys. Well, it was just Hallis's Staleys, the 1920 and 1921 Staleys. Huh. The the 1919 Staleys weren't mentioned. They were huh. totally forgotten. They and there were some 1919 Staleys there, but only the 1919 Staleys that had played for Hallis in 1920. And it's kind of funny. I had in the article, I had this uh, this team picture from the reunion, and uh, the. The 1919 Staley's, the local boys, the the Decatur guys, you know, Chuck, Chuck Dressen, uh, Jake Lanham, Jack Minton, and then uh, who were the other guys? Walt Veach was one of them, and Roy Adkins was the other one of them. They're all sitting on the same side of the picture. They're all kind of gravitating towards each other. So, you know, the the local boys hanging out together, sticking together, you know, the, the nucleus of that 1919 team uh, uh, kind of kind of kind of splitting off from you know you got Hallis on the left side and these other hall of famers that are there with him george trafton and whoever else uh jimmy Conselman is a, another hall of famer you know these 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 stars and and here's the local boys sticking together you know and they uh they might not have been the stars they might not have made the the hall of fame but they definitely were the foundation of what we now know today as the Chicago Bears. So we can't, uh, it, it's good to remember their contribution because if you didn't have those guys, if you didn't have uh, those local Decatur boys coming together and, and, and playing for A.E. Staley, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have the Chicago Bears today. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, you know, speculation. Would the Chicago Bears be in existence today if not for A.E. Staley and a semi-professional company team, the Decatur Staley's? Yeah, I would have to say absolutely not. You know, they they wouldn't have existed. And and one thing Staley did was give Hallis control. Sure, you can recruit you can recruit players. You know, promise them jobs, stuff like that. Now Hallis was a you know had had already played pro football, fairly high level pro football in Hammond in 1919. He would have found a job. He would have played pro football. But would he have become Papa Bear? Hmm. You know, would he have been given the keys to a team? You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a player coach in Hammond. Uh, there was uh, there were a couple other and that, that's another article that I'm working on right now actually uh, on the 1919 Hammond All Stars. But uh, yeah, Hallis uh, 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 Hammond in 1919 went through three coaches, and Hallis wasn't one of them. Hmm. So. Um, yeah, it's, it was just kind of kind of fortuitous that uh, that everything came together. Uh, but yeah, if that 1919 Decatur team hadn't existed, you know, if Staley had said, ah, we'll just stick with baseball or if he had never gotten into sports in the first place, you know, Hallis certainly would have played in pro football. But would he have become a coach? Would he have become an owner? Would he have become Papa Bear and mm. one of the founders of the NFL? I would say probably not. Wow. I mean, it's uh, again, it's it's tough to speculate on these things, sure. but uh, yeah. Interesting. What's the legacy of the Decatur Staley's? Well, the legacy of the Decatur Staley's, it's kind of fun because we had the, you know, the NFL's 100th anniversary last year. There was a lot of stuff about Staley, you know, the Staley's in Chicago and uh, uh, articles running in the Chicago Tribune about uh, about the team and about its foundings. and. Uh, Again, of course, didn't mention the 1919 Staley's at all, but the 1920 and 1921 Staley's. But um, yeah, that 1919 team, it was a good semi-pro team, a very good semi-pro team. They went six and one. They beat Taylorville. You know, they weren't playing the best competition, but they were good. They were they were a solid team that kind of marked a transition between the small time days, you know, the, the Decatur Indians of 1912 to 1916, that was, uh, that was getting beat up by Taylorville and, you know, winning against, you know, winning against some other towns, but, uh, uh, but not quite able to stand up to the very best. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, and then the post 1919 Decatur Staley's and then Chicago bears that, uh, that were the big time. So it's kind of, you have to have that link. You can't go straight from the small time to the big time. You have to have kind of a medium time. And I think that's what the 1919 Decatur Staley's were. 
You know, they were good. They were, you know, they were state champions or declared themselves state champions anyway, in a state that Mm -hmm. really didn't have much high level pro football at the time. You had the Chicago Cardinals, but they were, they were really more of a neighborhood team at the time. Uh, Yeah, it was, um, they were definitely significant as a transition between the small time and the big time. And the huge contribution that they made obviously was set the conditions for Hallis to come in and take them from the, from the small time through the media to medium time to the big time. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, they really were, it really was pretty foundational, pretty formational. Mm-hmm. So Chris, um, you and I talked earlier and you have written about so many different topics on football And you're going to come back and you're going to talk to us about wartime football. Can you give us a little peek into what wartime football is? Right. So this really was uh, this was how I how I got into the whole rabbit hole of uh, of researching the Decatur Staley's was the bigger work that I was doing, which was war football uh, book that I published last year. And in war football, I take a look at the Army, Navy and Marine Corps teams of World War One, these were the first all-star teams ever formed. They played each other and played against the top colleges in front of packed houses. They were uh, they were they were the best football teams, college, pro, or 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 anything else. The military teams were the best were the best football teams of the 1917-1918 seasons. And what I argue in war football is that these military teams really jump-started the foundation of the NFL, the formation of the NFL, uh, just a couple of years after the war ended. So uh, they kind of kind of removed some stigma around professionalism. You know, if uh, if, uh, if a big city crowd looked their, looked down their noses at pro football players before the war, well, wait a second, these these pro football players are Uncle Sam's boys. They're clean cut military veterans, you know, and and uh, and they're college graduates where before the war, not many were college graduates. So uh, I get into a bunch of the bunch of the reasons uh, that the uh, these military leagues, these military teams really accelerated the birth of the NFL. You know, the NFL was coming. We were going to go from that small time through mm-hmm. the medium time to the big time at some point, but because of the war and because of war football, it jump started the birth of the NFL, maybe five or 10 or even 20 years before it otherwise would have been founded. So, so that's what I, that's what I found in war football. That's what I lay out in war football. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks. Yeah, me too. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I think it's a terrific topic and I want to thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Decatur Staley's, uh, great stuff. And again, thanks so much for joining me. All right. You're welcome, Warren. This was, this was really fun to, uh, to talk about some of the forgotten heroes and, uh, and take this little walk down memory lane and, and uncover some of these stories. Absolutely. You bet. So Decatur lost its first game three to nothing, but then went on a crazy run that saw them win their final six games by the following scores, 50 to three, 89 to nothing, 32 to nothing, 21, seven, 61, nothing, and 41, nothing. So including that first game, the Staley's outscored the opposition for the year, 294 to 13. They dominated. Hallis, as you heard, joined the team and wound up taking them pro. And the Bears have been a fixture in the NFL ever since. First known as the Staley's in that inaugural season of 1920. But slowly and surely, they changed their name to the Chicago Bears. It's pretty interesting to think what would have happened had Hallis never entered the picture. One can only speculate. Thanks to today's guest, Chris Serb, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.